KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the war in Ukraine, how could it end? We'll have analysis from Anatole Levin. He wrote the book, Ukraine and Russia. Also, LA Sheriff Alex Villanueva seems to be headed for re-election this fall, despite the horrible record of excessive violence and criminal gangs among deputies. Gustavo Arellano of the LA Times will comment. He interviewed the sheriff recently. But first, our political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, there's a new California poll out. It says that even in the bluest of blue states, six in 10 voters give Joe Biden poor marks on his handling of inflation. They're responding to the latest figures, which show that inflation has reached 8.5%. Uh, it says this is the highest since 1981, which was more than 40 years ago. Gas now costs $6 a gallon. Airfares have gone up 40%. How should we understand this wave of inflation? What can Biden do about it? What is Biden doing about it? Well, uh, in, in, I think it's an important, uh, as we consider this, to realize that inflation is up in virtually uh, every country right now. This is not a uniquely American problem, and that calls into question how much you would blame uh, the rulers of uh, our country or any other country. Uh, there are problems, uh, great problems with the supply chain. Uh, and when China uh, closes something down, as it has closed pretty much everything down because of COVID in the last few weeks, uh, supply chains basically stop working and the, uh, the goods in circulation uh, become more costly as a result. Uh, there are delays, there are uh, price increases, there is uh, monopolization of different links in the supply chain, like uh, the uh, shipping companies. Uh, so th there's, a host of, there's a host of reasons. That said, what Biden can do about it is limited, but there are certainly proposals uh, that were part of the now uh, late lamented Build Back Better, but which could still uh, you know, be part of congressional legislation that would do things like put uh, price controls on insulin that would enable the government to negotiate down the cost of prescription drugs that could create a much better uh, financial state for younger Americans doing things like retiring student debt or subsidizing uh, childcare expenses. So there are things that the government can do that can limit the impact of rising prices on significant groups of Americans, basically all groups of Americans, if they take uh, prescription drugs or uh, have kids or, you know, any rather common conditions. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it is somewhat understandable that uh, citizens of any country blame leaders, uh, and often credit leaders for things that are beyond those leaders' capacities. You say it's understandable that people would blame the leaders of their nations. How about blaming the executives of the airline companies? Yeah, no, I think uh, certainly there's evidence that companies are making greater profits now than they made even before the pandemic. 
And again, the concentration of, of an industry in just a few, few leading companies, which can lead to a sort of de facto cartel on pricing, is a real factor. In airlines, we know that the big four airlines represent 80% of all the flights uh, in the United States. And uh, when one raises uh, their prices, the other raises their prices. So one way to deal with that, and there's been legislation introduced to deal with that, is a windfall profits tax that would, in the case of airlines, for instance, uh, note just how much more they are charging relative to what they were charging in 2019 before the pandemic um, and create a tax on that. You could do the same with the big oil companies uh, and the price at the pump, and you could rebate uh, the proceeds from that to uh, the American people. Uh, On the insulin front, my understanding of the current bill to lower the price of insulin would simply have the government pay most of the cost so that the insulin manufacturers would still get their insanely huge profits on something that's very simple to make. It's not really reducing the cost totally of insulin, just that the the end users would pay much less of it. That's not really the solution we're looking for. No, it's not the solution we're looking for. And for people who think that the size of the government of a deficit and government spending is a primary cause of inflation, it makes no sense at all. The thing to do is simply to reduce, uh, by law, the price of insulin to, as uh, many Democrats have suggested, 35 bucks. Um, this latest California poll also says voters are pessimistic about the future, and I'm never quite sure what to make of these polls. This is two-thirds of the registered voters in California say the country is on the wrong track. Just 26% think it is headed in the right direction. Republicans are 92% negative about the future, and a substantial majority of independents, 65%, agree along with 51% of Democrats. I'm never sure what to make of these right track, wrong track poll figures. Is this, is this really just a, a referendum on Biden? No, no. I mean, you, you, you know, there's, there's no way to unpack something like this because the question is too vague. 51% of the Democrats may be fearing a Republican sweep in the midterm elections. Yeah. Uh, you know, they may find that that's what's wrong. Uh, I think there is a general concern with the whole world that COVID created, that, that, that for different reasons triggers uh, a pessimistic outlook among a, ho- a whole wide range of people. I mean, there are things like that. Certainly things like, uh, you know, rising crime, which uh, no one has really put their finger on. But I think in many ways, uh, there's been just a, a, a well of anger kind of building up uh, after two years of COVID. uh, That's a factor there. Uh, So yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons uh, to be uh, somewhat pessimistic that that, that's a a human uh, condition, which has many, uh, many parents. Uh, And there's a new poll of the LA mayor's race, which shows that billionaire developer Rick Caruso has moved up dramatically and is now tied with Karen Bass, the member of Congress, former community organizer and friend of ours. Karen Bass had been way ahead, but the LA Times credited what it called 
quote, a seemingly limitless geyser of cash, close quote, that Rick Caruso has been spending $9 million of his own money so far. And this succeeded in moving him up from 8% to 24% among likely voters, while Kevin DeLeon, uh, who had 8% support in February, was tied with Caruso, is now a distant third with 6%. Uh, how seriously should we take these figures? I would take him fairly seriously. I mean, Rick Caruso can outspend not just any other candidate, but every other candidate. Uh, and, you know, that's an effective way of reaching voters. And uh, even the best funded of his opponents, which is to say Karen Bass, uh, isn't really up and running with her ad campaign yet. And so, A, it's a real problem. B, uh, one, it was somewhat striking in the poll that uh, De Leon, uh, hasn't really consolidated any support that's significant within the Latino community, which is presumably his base. And what this uh, augurs is a runoff, which would be in November, between Karen Bass and Rick Caruso. In Karen Bass's favor, this is a basically pretty liberal city, and she represents that strain of uh, L.A. Angelino ideology, for lack of a better term. Uh, you know, she's going to be outspent by Caruso. She's going to have to have a major ground campaign to upset that. We shall see if that happens or not. And, you know, given uh, issues of crime and homelessness and such, Caruso is counting on a kind of backlash uh, akin mm -hmm. to the one that elected Richard Reardon, uh, who was pretty much, I think, in the same political camp as Caruso, wealthy businessman, sort of center-right uh, in politics, um, who was elected after the Rodney King uprisings of 1992. And so if, if Caruso were to win, I would you know, say it's a combination of money and that. If Karen Bass wins, uh, you know, she's going to have to have one heck of a ground game. And also something that's kind of hard for Democrats to do, uh, which is come up with... Uh, sort of plausible immediate solutions for things like homelessness. Yeah. Not that Caruso can, but he can at least, you know, say, well, look, I'm, a, I'm an outsider and, uh, you know, no, nothing I've supported has been taken seriously. Not that he has any great ideas on that either. The poll found that Karen Bass right now has the, has the support of only half of likely black voters and only 40% of white liberals. That's, that's not enough. Uh, black voters make up just under 10% of the city's likely voters. White liberals make up about 3 in 10 of the city's likely voters. And no candidate has emerged as a clear favorite of Latino voters who make up about one-fourth of the likely electorate. Latino voters are mostly undecided uh, compared with a third of whites and a third of blacks who say they're undecided. What do you make of that breakdown? Well, to begin with, uh, I, I don't think Karen Bass is that widely known uh, to much of the electorate. Uh, and as she becomes more widely known, I would think her support would, would rise. Whether it will rise enough is, uh, is a very good question. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, if, if you look at the national polling, uh, the, voting, uh, the voting patterns of working class Latinos working class Latino men um, isn't moving to the left. It may be somewhat starting in, in a more liberal position, but moving a little to the right. 
And so, you know, I would ex- expect the November runoff, uh, which I expect to be between um, Karen Bass and, and Rick Caruso, to be uh, really, uh, you know, a test of, of, of all of these all of these questions. And meanwhile, there was an election in France on Sunday for president. We care about France, where center right, the center-right incumbent president, Emmanuel Macron, is running for re-election. From our point of view, he's been pretty much of a disaster, but his main challenger is a nightmare from the far right, Marine Le Pen. What happened to the French left? What happened to the socialists and the communists and the Greens in this first round of presidential elections there? Can you please explain French politics? No. But I will try anyway. Uh, uh, Macron uh, ran as sort of a a new face five years ago in the last presidential election, uh, more or less sort of suggesting he would take some of the center-left programs of the Socialist Party and some of the center-right programs of uh, the center-right party, which is kind of a descendant, circuitous descendant of the old Gaullist uh, De Gaulle uh, movement party in France, um, and bring his own fresh perspectives to it, kind of as an, an enlightened businessman. Uh, in fact, once in power, he veered to, to the right, uh, but he more or less managed to uh, sort of destroy the raison d'etre for the center left and center right parties. Uh, meanwhile, what we see among French, the French, le- the French left. Uh, in particular, French young people is kind of akin to young Americans uh, flocking to Bernie Sanders. That's what they did uh, with the left candidacy of uh, Jean-Louis Mélenchon, uh, however you pronounce that, who came in a rather close third, only running a, a point or two behind Le Pen. And what you're left with is an electorate in France that is sort of one third left, if you consolidate all of the left parties into one one camp, one-third centrist, which is Macron plus uh, what's left of the old Gaullist party, and one-third nationalist, racist, populist right. But since it's a runoff between the top two finishers, that doesn't leave any alternative uh, for those on the left, for that one-third. And so you're going to see a peculiar election in which whether those voters who clearly aren't going to vote, well, most of whom are not going to vote for Le Pen, whether they turn out and vote for Macron, not because they like Macron, but because they don't want France to veer to the right. Uh, So we'll see. So so what exactly is it about uh, the incumbent centrist Macron that makes it so hard for the leftists to vote for him in the coming runoff, which is in April 24th. I mean, less than two weeks from now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. I mean, he moved, he moved to the right and never really looked over his left shoulder, but looked over his right shoulder a lot in his five years as president. First of all, uh, adopting the, the kind of uh, quasi racist anti-Muslim policies of, uh, of the far right. And then as a center right uh, business guy, uh, eliminating the wealth tax, cutting back social benefits, uh, going to war now and then against France's unions, 
and insisting, which is, I think, idiotic, uh, uh, just an idiotic policy to bring into an election, insisting on raising uh, the age for eligibility for retirement benefits from 62 to 65. Now, if you were a banker like Macron, it's no big deal to work to 65. If you're working, you know, as a blue collar worker with a kind of physically arduous job, it is a big deal. And Macron, like the rest of the European racist populist right, is opposed to this and is a defender of uh, what in Europe, to us, looks like relatively generous welfare states, except she only wants it, uh, she only wants that the historically French, that is to say white uh, uh, citizens of France to be eligible for it. And so that's that's the choice uh, that the nation and uh, a, a rather uh, stunned French left has to cope with now. And I want to return to the question we've talked about for the last few weeks about working class organizing in the wake of the victory of the Amazon Workers Union on Staten Island. Uh, since we've we have thought for decades that since the big corporations have so many resources to crush workers movements that we needed big national labor unions to take the lead with their experience, their expertise and their money in fighting the corporations on behalf of the workers. But the Amazon workers on Staten Island have sort of called all that into question. They won as an independent grassroots movement, not affiliated with any national union. You said here last week that the AFL-CIO now is thinking about itself supporting self-organizing workers, which is a pretty dramatic shift. Um, rather than taking the lead, setting the agenda, and bringing in their expertise. But what exactly does that mean in practice? How are they setting out to do this, and what should they be doing? Well, they haven't yet set out to do this. Uh, on, on, at Starbucks, uh, the baristas are being backed up by one wing of SCIU, which is an established, uh, very capable Union At Amazon, not yet. The Teamsters uh, in their convention last summer had uh, vowed to spend a great deal of money uh, organizing Amazon warehouses. Uh, the Teamsters have more warehouses, none of them Amazon, under contract than any other union as a function of being, you know, where the trucks drop off, pick up uh, what they deliver. Uh, but uh, it, it's not really clear what these unions can do. Now, we at the Prospect ran an article on Monday by John Hyatt, who had been in sequence, first the general counsel at SAIU, then the general counsel at the AFL-CIO, once John Sweeney, former SAU president, became president of the AFL-CIO, and then chief of staff at the uh, AFL-CIO under Rich Tromka. And what uh, John was arguing was that uh, unions have to devote a huge amount of resources to supporting, backing up, uh, funding worker self-organization and doing things like, you know, for, for the Amazon workers in, the, in the Staten Island, for instance, and any other Amazon workers who self-organize, giving, you know, producing a draft of a sort of a generic first contract, which is not anything that those workers had done. 
but you know, leaving a lot of blank spaces um, for the uh, workers in particular locales to, to fill in the details. So there's a whole range of support type things as, as well as providing legal counsel, which Lord knows uh, any such organization of the self-organized workers is going to need uh, to help these workers out. And I think the fact that John Hyatt made this proposal suggests that it's, it's something that labor, uh, parts of labor are certainly thinking about and all of labor should be thinking about. One more thing, news about Jared Kushner. We learned this week that an investment fund controlled by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, we call him MBS, uh, the Saudis invested $2 billion, B as in baby, with Jared Kushner, despite the fact that the Saudi financial advisors found Jared Kushner's new company, quote, unsatisfactory in all respects, close quote. Now, if the prospect was judged to have a financial plan unsatisfactory in all, in all respects, probably MBS would not invest in it. So the question is, and no American uh, institu financial institution has invested in Kushner's new enterprise. So why do you think a smart guy like MBS would give Jared Kushner $2 billion? Well, you know, look, I mean, we know from MBS's history what kinds of things historically keep him busy. And I suspect he ran out of journalists he wanted to murder for a given <laughs> period of time and said, well, okay, let's give Trump's son-in-law uh, some money until I can think of another journalist I want to murder. That's just a, hypo a hypothesis, but you know, <laughs> sounds reasonable to me. I think Jared Kushner, didn't he defend MBS after uh, Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi was not only murdered, but dismembered on the orders of MBS? Wasn't that Jared's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there's a connection between, you know, how MBS spends his time and uh, rewarding, uh, rewarding Jared Kushner. I, I, you know, I mean, you know, this certainly creates a possibility that maybe Jared Kushner could get some money from Vladimir Putin. I mean, uh, you know, there's a... Uh, uh, a history of, of uh, folks who uh, uh, his father-in-law, uh, Donald Trump, was enamored of, um, you know, coming to uh, the support of the broader Trump family. And so we have to we have to watch out for that, too. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The L.A. County Sheriff has more than 10,000 deputies to police the biggest county in the country with 10 million people and the biggest jail system in the world. In a terrible record of killing young men of color and deputies who belong to criminal gangs. The sheriff is elected, and in 2018, an incumbent sheriff was defeated for the first time in more than a century, and L.A. County elected its first Latino sheriff, Alex Villanueva. He promised to reform the department. Now he's the biggest political problem we have in L.A. because he's doing so many of the things he promised not to. For comment, we turn to Gustavo Ariano. He's an indispensable columnist at the L.A. Times, covering, as he says, Southern California everything. 
He previously worked at the late lamented OC Weekly, where he was an investigative reporter for 15 years and an editor for six, and wrote a memorable column called Ask a Mexican. He's also author of the book Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. He describes himself as the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Gracias as always, John. Well, some listeners may not be sure where the LAPD patrols and where the deputy sheriff's patrol. They each have about 10,000 officers. Please explain. So the LAPD, the iconic LAPD, is specifically in the city of Los Angeles. L.A. County Sheriff's deputies, on the other hand, they patrol technically unincorporated areas of Los Angeles County and also cities. I believe they contract with about half of the cities in Los Angeles County. But technically, since the city of Los Angeles is in L.A. County, they can also do things within that city. But historically, they have just patrolled the areas where they have contracts with and leave Los Angeles to LAPD. So the cities that have their own police departments do not have sheriffs. That's what? Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, Long Beach. But the cities that don't, that's West Hollywood, East L.A., Compton, Malibu, I'm leaving out dozens. Oh, yeah. Lancaster up in the high desert. Remember, L.A. County is a humongous county from the port cities of Long Beach, the town of Wilmington, all the way to the high desert. Uh, you know, Lancaster, the Antelope Valley, mountains, forests. <laughs> and yeah, you have Malibu, you have Point Doom, you have Isla. So much, so, so much. And so the deputy, the deputy is the sheriff's department covers that humongous, humongous area. 88 cities, I believe. So after you joined the L.A. Times, at the start, you didn't write much about the sheriff until he announced last fall that all sheriff's deputies could wear cowboy hats while they were on the <laughs> job. What was it that got to you about sheriffs in Stetsons? I had previously covered Villanueva a little bit because he, along with all the other sheriffs in Southern California, they refused to enforce the vaccine mandates that a lot of counties were passing. Villanueva himself has said, I'm taking the vaccine, but I think it's a personal choice. So I mentioned him in passing. But one day I remember Villanueva was out in Venice, which is part of the city of Los Angeles. So he was out of his jurisdiction, but he was walking around Venice, the boardwalk, where there was a big homeless encampment, just sauntering along saying, oh, you know, the city of Los Angeles is not cracking down on the homeless. I'm going to crack down on the homeless. And I just remember him. He was walking around with, I couldn't tell if it was a Stetson or an Outback hat, like Crocodile Dundee. I'm like, okay, you're trying to flex. You're trying to make yourself out to be, I don't know, Gary Cooper in High Noon, John Wayne in The Searchers. Take your pick of iconic Westerns. And I was almost going to write something then to make fun of him. But then someone told me the reason he does that is because he is a survivor of melanoma, uh, you know, uh, on, on his lip. And I'm like, okay, even I'm not going to punch low because my mother died of ovarian cancer. I respect that. But then a couple months later in the fall, he announces... During one of his uh, live streams on Facebook, now all sheriff's deputies can wear cowboy hats whenever. Historically, it was limited to official appearances or up in the high desert when you're on horseback. Yeah, you look good. But all of a sudden, I'm like, I know why you're doing it. Your, your, your deputies really do envision themselves as the men in white hat against a lawless society to bring civilization. So it's purely political. But I thought, I, you know what? It's Sometimes as a columnist, you write serious columns or you write lark columns. So I wrote this column on the lark. All right, there's your Sheriff Villanueva looking like Ranger Rick. And now all of his deputies are going to look like that. Ha, ha, ha. And I just published it. 
And this somehow got to him, and he wanted <laughs> to spar with you over this. He went on his Facebook Live to call me a vendido, a sellout. I responded in kind and just ripped him apart. Then I'm like, you know what? I have other things to worry about. But as uh, 2022 came along, Sheriff Villanueva's up for re-election. There's a June primary coming in. There's a lot of opponents going up against him. There's a lot of anger against him. But I'm like, you know what? Villanueva's going to win. People make him out to be a meathead. He's not a meathead. He's actually very, very smart like Nixon. He knows, he, he takes the pulse of what's going on. And in LA County, you have a lot of Latinos who are pro-law enforcement. So when I went to his, when I requested an interview, my intents were clear and pure. I really just wanted to talk, kind of like when Hunter S. Thompson talked to Nixon about football and only that, that was my intention. I'm like, we're only going to talk about Latinos and your de department and say what you will about Villanueva, but his the sheriff's department, it's over half Latino. It reflects, it's actually more reflective of Latinos in LA County than almost any big entity, public or private, that you could think of. And you open with a really interesting question how protest against police brutality is much more widespread among black people than among Latinos. There's never been a case of a Latino killed by a cop or a sheriff that has galvanized Americans the way too many cases of slain black people have. And he had an explanation for that difference. He starts out very progressive, saying that Latinos don't have the same experience, uh, historic experience of racism and the longevity the way the black community has. So he's invoking Jim Crow, KKK, redlining. He's a Democrat, mind you. He still says he's a Democrat. So I'm like, wow, this is very progressive. I'm, you know, he's surprising me already. But then that's when the interview just takes a complete, not even a 1-8, it's like a 720, <laughs> just a car that careens out of control on the freeway. And he goes beyond that to just start talking about how the black community kills itself more than police officers do. And no one ever complains about that at all. And then it just went downhill from there. He had a lot of complaints about black people. <laughs> I, I was shocked. A lot, you know, as a reporter, when you talk to people, sometimes you just shut up and let them talk. And that's what he did. He complained that too many black uh, deputies had gotten promotions in the past. He accused them of nepotism. He said that black people were by far the main assailants again in anti-Asian hate crimes, even though the stats do not even do not even come close to justifying that or validating that. He said that the Los Angeles Times has too many black reporters, has too much black coverage, not enough Latinos. And he's going on and on and on. And I'm thinking to myself, I wanted to talk to you about Latinos and here you're going off on anti-black tangents. I'm just going to continue to let you talk. And so when the interview was over, it was one hour. They, he showed up a couple of minutes late, but he gave me the full hour, maybe just a little bit more. So kudos to him for that. But I remember texting my editor. Then he calls me, I'm like, I was only supposed to have one column for you, maybe two, but I think we have a small series going on here because he said a lot of things. I'm an American historian, and the way he talked to you about Latinos and blacks being enemies, being opposed to each other, and describing Latinos as more conservative, more supportive of traditional law and order— I have to say, that's almost exactly what Nixon argued back in 1968. He knew that after the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed, there were going to be lots of new black voters, and they were all, 100% of them were going to be Democrats. There was nothing to do about that. And his idea for the Republicans was to recruit Latinos because he said 
They were more religious, more family-oriented, more focused on building small businesses. They, you know, he had this stereotype of the virtuous and hardworking immigrants, unlike the black people who live off government handouts. But that was that was Nixon. That was 1968. <laughs> Is Alex Villanueva still in that world? Oh, yeah. At the end of everything, that was my summation of him. I said he was Nixonian. And a lot of people took that as an insult. And for me, it was a warning to both the people who oppose him and the people who support him. Nixon was not dumb. His 68 election was genius because he did play on the antipathy that white voters were going to have against black voters. And now, though, the majority is going to be Latinos and white voters against black voters. So he knew especially in Los Angeles, when even liberals are now against homelessness, against a, a supposed rise in crime, he was speaking directly to them. So that's genius on his part. I do think he's still going to win the 2022 election, his reelection campaign. But also, what ended up doing Nixon in the end? Himself, his hubris and his paranoia. And that's all Sheriff Villanueva. Incredibly paranoid, also, uh, you know, keeper of these petty grievances that flare up at on him like freaking a disease or something. We have to talk about what the LA Times has uncovered about the criminal gangs of sheriff's deputies. It's pretty scary stuff. Oh my gosh. So one of the big issues over the past, geez, 30 years has been this plague of sheriff's deputy gangs in the LA Sheriff's Department. This is not the liberal LA Times saying it, radical activists. As in the early 1990s, you had a federal judge the crying, in his words, racist white supremacist gangs that were operating out of the L.A. Sheriff's Department. So Villanueva comes in and all of a sudden he declares they're not gangs. They're just social groups. They're social clubs, even though there are many documented cases of these groups with names like the banditos, where all the members have matching tattoos, where members, when they meet another so-called group, they'll get in fights over rivalries there to the point where you also have this. There's been lawsuits finding this out in court and whatnot. So Sheriff Villanueva, and what does he do? Instead of eradicating these groups, he goes to the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, sends them a cease and desist letter and says, you cannot call them gangs because it's anti-Latino, because Latinos make up the majority of the force. And again, I was going to ask him this before the conversation went off the rails, and I said, how is that racist? And so he goes saying, well, going back to the anti-black thing, I guarantee you if my department was majority black and I was a black uh, sheriff, there was no way on earth anyone would call these groups gangs. And so I told him to describe it. It's like, look, you know, what else are you going to call them? Well, you know, these are just groups that they'll, you know, because he also mentioned that they have caused him problems, that he mentioned two cases where there was fights between these groups. One case, uh, in one case, 20-some deputies were let go. This uh, preceded Villanueva. In another case, two deputies were left unconscious. And he said, well, you know, when you have these groups, sometimes they're going to have too much to drink. And then one person sees the girlfriend of, an, of someone else in another group. I'm like, you're describing a gang. That's exactly what law enforcement says says about Latino youth hanging out. It's like, well, no, the, you know, Lat you know, gangs, criminal gangs have that intent and their rap sheet has a bunch of crimes, whereas the sheriff's groups, their rap sheet has a lot of commendations. And as I wrote, <laughs> literally, uh, okay. And of course, we have to talk about the L.A. County jails, horribly violent places, despite years, decades of litigation and federal oversight. The latest oversight report from court-appointed monitors says 
there remains a serious and long-standing problem with deputies using force as guards in the L.A. County jails under Villanueva. Deputies brutally punch incarcerated people in the head and initiate unnecessary force rather than taking steps to avoid it and then fabricate reports to justify their actions. That's from the oversight report just last week. What does he say about the jails? It's a violent place. Sometimes things are going to happen. He'll say that when things cross the line, he will enact force against his own deputies, discipline. But here's a problem with Villanueva. He he sees his deputies as they cannot do any wrong at all. And so because of that, if anyone criticizes those deputies, you must be anti-law enforcement. And even worse, even more Nixonian, if you will, Villanueva does not forget who insults his deputies. So if you think he said a lot of bad things about me, that does not compare to my colleague, Aline Chekmedian, who covers the L.A. Sheriff's Department. And he just goes on and on about how bad Aline is, how she's not a fair reporter, and how the L.A. Times just does not treat them right. And his deputies have been just one circus after another. You have, you know, and I do say circus because it's just there's all these different things going around in different rings. You have the deputies beating up, uh, uh, you know, people in the jails. You have the sheriff gangs going around. Don't forget, right after the death of Kobe Bryant, you had a deputy disseminating gruesome pictures of the accident scene of where Kobe Bryant died while hanging out at a bar just like nothing. And then Villanueva says that was never supposed to go out. And he's, and he's still in court claiming that Vanessa Bryan, Kobe Bryant's widow, did not suffer any undue emotional stress because of the dissemination of these photos. It's just an embarrassment. And Villanueva someone who can never say, I'm sorry. Although I was very surprised in one case where there was one of the most notorious cases of someone being killed by sheriff's deputies in his uh, regime has been the case of Andres Guardado, an 18-year-old Salvadoran American who was acting as a security guard in a body shop in Gardena, shot by two sheriff's deputies. Uh, Villanueva called an inquest, a coroner's inquest into Guardado's death, like like some, like basically a joke. But in my conversation with him, he actually called what happened a tragedy and admitted that the feds are investigating that. So I don't know if he was meant to say that, but he said it to me. And uh, he's supporting the effort to recall LA's progressive district attorney, George Gascon. Isn't Gascon another Latino? Another Caribbean Latino. George Gascon was born in Cuba. Uh, Alex Villanueva was half Puerto Rican, raised in Puerto Rico. And oh, Villanueva despises Gascon, says because of him, that's why crime rates are going through the roof. Villanueva doesn't take any responsibility for rising crime rates as whatever they are. And so Villanueva has been very upfront of his support for the recall campaign. There was a recall effort last year that fizzled out, but this most recent one seems to have a lot of momentum to at least put the, the question of a recall of Gascon on the ballot sometimes this year. Last question. As you said, the sheriff is up for re-election this year. There's a primary in June. Uh, what do we know about the people challenging him. A lot of former sheriff's deputies who served in the department who say Villanueva is an embarrassment. You have some Latinos. You have a black sheriff deputy as well, Cecil Rambo. But they're all small names right now. Villanueva, again, he is running as an incumbent. He is running with basically every conservative in Los Angeles, which is at this point is about a quarter of the population. But he has that secured then you're going to have the middle of the road people who are going to side with him. And the wild card, really, the people who I think are going to elect him are the people who elected him in the first place, Latinos in 2018. You see a Hispanic name 
on the ballot, even if you don't know who he is and you see a, no other non-Latino, non-Hispanic surnames on the ballot, you're going to go for that one. I don't know if Villanueva wins outright the primary, which means it'll go to a general election. But at this point, the only person who could beat Villanueva is Villanueva. And don't count Villanueva out of beating Villanueva. <laughs> Gustavo Ariano is a columnist for the LA Times. Gustavo, thanks for talking with us today. Gracias as always. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We need to talk about Russia's war in Ukraine and how it could end. For comment and analysis, we turn to Anatole Levin. He wrote the book, Ukraine and Russia. He's a senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. Anatole Levin, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, you wrote for The Nation back at the time of the fall of Kabul on November 15th that the threat of war in Ukraine was much more dangerous to the world than anything happening in Afghanistan. That was on November 15th. Wow. The question now is how the war in Ukraine can end. We're speaking on Tuesday, April 5th, it's day 40 of the war in Ukraine. Russia has pulled its forces back from around Kiev. Putin has been talking about victory in defending the Russians and the Donbass from the fascists that were threatening them. That seems to point towards the possibility of some kind of settlement. On the other hand, all the news about Russian troops killing civilians has led Biden to say Putin should be put on trial for war crimes. That seems to make a settlement less likely. You wrote back in November that we already had the outlines of a settlement in Ukraine, drawn up by France, Germany, Russia, and Ukraine, endorsed by the United States, the European Union, and the UN. You said it corresponds to democratic practice and international law and to America's own approach to the settlement of ethnic conflicts. Moreover, at the time it was endorsed, it required no concessions, you said, of real substance by either Ukraine or the U.S. What was that proposal, and is any of it still relevant after 40 days of war? Minsk II was an agreement between Ukraine and Russia, brokered by France and Germany, uh, whereby the two separatist uh, parts of the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, uh, which had rebelled against Ukraine, backed by Russia, would go back into Ukraine, uh, but on the basis of full local autonomy. Now, I mean, there were all sorts of problems about uh, Minsk too, but the, the basic one, it has to be said, is that the, the, the Ukrainians refused either to let the Donbass republics become independent or to pass the laws on autonomy, which were necessary in order to implement the Minsk Agreement because they were afraid uh, that an autonomous Donbass within Ukraine would act as a break on Ukraine moving towards the West, which was probably true, but of course it was only on the basis of autonomy that you could solve that, that issue. And by the way, the United States and the UN both endorsed the, Min uh, the Minsk Agreement in 2015, so there was unanimity behind it. Uh, but the West did nothing really to push the Ukrainians into implementing it. 
uh, or on the other hand into you know allowing the Donbass to go and so that along with you know the offer of NATO membership that was not really an offer of NATO membership but coupled with the refusal you know to offer a treaty of neutrality look I mean I must make very clear nothing can excuse uh, the, the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine um, but it must be said you, you know that uh, we and the Ukrainians also missed numerous diplomatic chances of averting this war let's talk about neutrality um for Ukraine, it's usually regarded as something that would be a, a huge and dangerous sacrifice for Ukraine. Is that the way you see it? Well, no. Um, but of course, the, the, the main point is what Z President Zelensky of Ukraine said. In the run-up to the war, he went to the leaders of NATO and the West and he said, can, can you assure me that within a space of years, five years, I think, that you will you know, offer NATO membership to Ukraine? And they said no. And so, after the war began, uh, Zelensky has now offered a treaty of, of neutrality. The sad thing is that for Zelensky's political reasons, he couldn't offer that before the war. And the leaders of the West, for their own political reasons, not very creditable ones, I have to say, um, did not offer that either. But you know, it's, it's worse even than that, because uh, Zelensky is now offering a treaty of neutrality. Uh, but very understandably, from a Ukrainian point of view, he is asking for security guarantees that the, the West will go to war if, if Ukraine is invaded again. Now, after all this language in which the British, my own country, have been you know, among the leaders of solidarity with Ukraine, the British government came out immediately and said, no, no, we're not going to offer any, any security guarantees to Ukraine. Sorry, no. I mean, in these circumstances where the, the West is not prepared to take Ukraine into NATO, is not prepared to offer any security guarantees, neutrality is, you know, the obvious way out. Now, as far as guarantees are concerned, what the Ukrainians can get is a cast iron guarantee uh, that if Russia you know, breaks the treaty and invades Ukraine again, that the West will reimpose full economic sanctions. But that presupposes that in return for a peace agreement the west has lifted economic sanctions yes i'd like to ask about that because the united states has imposed sanctions on other countries and left them in place uh, for decades you know iran what 40 years cuba 60 years i mean a lot of this is for domestic political reasons can you imagine an end can you imagine a settlement of the war without an end to sanctions but can you imagine that America would abandon sanctions? Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. But I mean, th this is at that point, this ceases to be about looking for peace or helping Ukraine or bringing about a, a Russian withdrawal. It becomes a mixture of, you know, desire to punish Putin and Russia and, of course, uh, American geopolitical agendas of weakening Russia, uh, not really for the sake of Ukraine, but for the, for the sake of isolating China. I really do not see how that can be presented as a moral position. And especially because, as I say, the, the only way to build retaliation into a treaty of neutrality and a peace agreement is to threaten sanctions. But as, as I say, that presupposes that the sanctions have been lifted. But also, you know, if we want Russian withdrawal, we, you know, we've got to give Russia incentives to do so. But finally, I mean, the, um, I mean, the point is that the sanctions, 
leave aside you know, the sanctions that were imposed in 2014 because of the annexation of Crimea and because of the civil war in the Donbass. I mean, that's a, that's a separate issue. The, uh, by the way, the Ukrainian government has said that those issues can be shelved you know, for, for later negotiation. But the, sanction, the latest round of sanctions were, were imposed in response to the Russian invasion. Quite rightly, by the way, I, I support full sanctions, you know, because I, I deeply, deeply oppose this invasion. But logically, therefore, you know, they should be lifted in return for a reasonable and acceptable peace deal, and in order to make that peace deal possible. And what's the alternative to a negotiated ceasefire and, and a settlement? What, what would an open-ended military stalemate look like for Ukraine? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the Russians having, you know, totally messed up their military plan uh, to, to a quite extraordinary degree, really. I mean, quite apart from the, the criminal aspect of this invasion, you know, it's been handled with, with utter, utter incompetence. But anyway, I mean, you know, having failed to, to capture Kiev and having failed to frighten the Ukrainian government into running away or surrendering, the Russians are now deliberately pulling back from uh, around Kiev in order to concentrate on conquering the whole of the Donbass. Because very important point, you see, is that before the war, the Russians did not hold the whole of the Donbass region, but they recognized these republics in the whole of the Donbass region. So now they're going to try and conquer the whole of that. Mariupol, by the way, you know, which has now been under siege for a month, um, is uh, is also part of the Donbass. And then um, one suggestion that I've heard uh, out of Moscow, I, I mean, you understand this is not from the Russian government because this is at fourth hand because Putin's circle has become so narrow that people who in the past I know who were in a position to know what was going on, they confess themselves that they don't. But anyway, there is talk that uh, because Russia has suffered such heavy casualties um, among its best troops in the war, that if, if it can conquer the whole of the, of the Donbass, then Putin can proclaim victory, you know, that he has liberated the Donbass, that the Russians might then offer a unilateral ceasefire, uh, you know, and say, now these are our... These are our negotiating terms now, uh, and basically then stand on the defensive uh, and challenge the Ukrainians to, you know, attack them in the east, uh, because then uh, you know the Ukrainians would start suffering very, very heavy casualties. Um, and if we, of course, escalated with you know supplies of tanks and warplanes to allow a full-scale Ukrainian uh, offensive, then you know that would escalate the war to another level. Um, so I suspect that what might happen would be a, um, you know, yet another unending conflict, you know, like the Donbass since 2014, but on a larger scale, um, or Kashmir, you know, in which there would be um, maybe not full scale, uh, after a while, there would no longer be full scale war, but there would be endless, you know, clashes. Now, that would be very sad because I, I think that actually, in many ways, we have 90% of a, of a peace agreement is already in, in place. A treaty of neutrality with guarantees, but not security guarantees, which they won't get. But, you know, 
Look, the Austrians didn't get security guarantees in the Austrian State Treaty of 1955. The Finns didn't. At a certain point, you just have to trust that people will keep an agreement. And and also, I mean, the the, the reason I keep referring to the Finnish example is is that of course the um, the reason or a key reason why Stalin did not try to you know conquer Finland completely and incorporate it in the Soviet Union was that the Finns had fought so hard. I think that's true of the Ukrainians as well. I, I would very much doubt that if, you know, if Russia can get an agreement that Putin can present as a success, can pretend to be a success, I, I would myself very much doubt that any Russian government would want to repeat this experience again, because you know, I mean, it has been uh, it's been militarily disastrous for Russia as well as economically disastrous, and the Russians, you know, it appears have. Um, dropped their demand for demilitarization. They've dropped their demand for denazification. And the Ukrainian government uh, has uh, very wisely uh, said that the, you know, the territorial issues of, of Crimea and the Donbass you know, can be compartmentalized and left for future diplomatic negotiation. Now, I'm not saying that that would ever lead to anything, but you, you, then you get to something like you know, the case of Northern Cyprus, for example, mm -hmm. you know, which has lasted for 45 years now. Um, and there have been endless rounds of negotiation. They've never led to the reunification uh, of Cyprus. But on the other hand, there hasn't been another war. So, uh, but the problem, I mean, the, the key problem is the Donbass, I think. That's the 10% that's the, the or so, uh, which remains, you know, unsolved. And, and how do you think um, years of sanctions will reshape Russia's economy and society? I, I think that Russia will inevitably become more and more and more dependent on China. Um, you know, China will replace the West as or Europe as the market for Russian gas and oil. China will then, by the way, also determine the price of Russian gas and oil. And this will be you know, a, a partnership very much on, on China's terms. Within Russia, I think it's very clear you will have a a much more state-dominated economy, um, you know, much more state capitalism, if you will, and it will be much, much more repressive. You know, it will be Russia, you know, once again looking, I mean, not like the Soviet Union, um, obviously it will still be a, a capitalist system, uh, but, you, you know, with much higher levels of, of repression uh, than we've seen, well, since before Gorbachev, actually. And do you see Europe going without Russian natural gas uh, indefinitely? They, they say now they want to reduce imports by two thirds and maybe also coal. Is this, is this a temporary wartime situation or is this something more permanent? Well, I think over time, the Europeans will definitely move away from Russian energy supplies. But I mean, this this will take this will take time because the alternatives are not there, except for coal. I mean, coal is there, but you know, I mean, at that point, you you know, talk of serious action against climate change goes out of the window. And of course, as far as gas is concerned, if if America really you know develops fracking further and tosses any environmental concerns there out of the window, then over time you know, Europe can be uh, supplied. But of course, this will, this has to come in tankers across the Atlantic, which means colossal investment in new infrastructure, whereas, of course, the Russian gas comes by pipeline. 
so A, this can't be done quickly. B, it's very expensive. But C, uh, because, you, you know, a, another great concern of mine is climate change. I, a book of mine published last year, or was it the year before, but I can't remember anymore, on, on climate change. And of course, once you've built a huge new uh, LNG infrastructure, it's going to be even less likely that Europe will move away from, you know, natural gas. You, we will see, I, I doubt under all the big talk, that Europe would be willing to undergo the kind of sacrifices uh, that um, would be necessary in order to do, do without Russian gas now. Um, and I think, you know, this, this is the thing, I mean, if the Russians are sensible and, you know, do declare a ceasefire and, you know, basically accept all the Ukrainian conditions except the question of the borders of the Donbass, then I think you, you might see a split between some of the Europeans and, uh, and, and America uh, over whether to, to, to accept the Russian terms. Anatole Levin is a senior fellow of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a contributor to The Nation. Anatole, thank you for talking with us today. Glad to be here. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.